This is Iron Sports. We're talking to Craig Hodges, author of Long Shot, The Triumph and Struggles of an NBA Freedom Fighter. Uh, Craig, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. No problem. Nice to have you. I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's cool to get a chance to uh, speak across the airways. Hope everybody is doing well during this time, and God bless everybody, man. <laughs> That's great. That's great. You know, you really on the forefront. You wrote this book a couple years ago. It's going to come out in, I think, a month or two in paperback, and it's it's like a must-read. But you cover issues about social justice, the work you did with the NBA Union, the fact that you were one of the greatest shooters of all time. Uh, you were an NBA champion on one of those famous teams of all time with the Jordan Bulls. And uh, so it's pretty, it's really, you really cover, you, you would think it's, it's like maybe uh, the war and peace in terms of what you have to cover your entire life in your book. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. You know, and it's something that, you know, writing has always been something I love doing, and I just felt it was time for me to get published. Uh, I'm doing, I have two two books right now that I'm working on, one basketball and one for social justice. But the main thing is was uh, basically writing and, and getting, you know, people talk about what your life is like. People speculate on what happened when we went to the White House. And I just felt it was time that I just sit down and take the time. It took me 18 months to actually the whole project and get it together so it was um it was love and doing it and then at the same time i didn't realize the impact that it would have after it was done yeah, and then you talk about being social justice you were involved in it when you were in elementary school i mean you felt like there was a, a famous doctor named dr charles gavin in chicago yeah, grew right. up in chicago and you led the move to change the school your school's name it was benjamin franklin was not a, a controversial name but you thought it was a, a great to honor dr charles gavin for the name of the school and as an elementary student you actually led that fight yeah and you know and that was the part that we were taught early man is that you have you have energy and the energy that you utilize in life can be positive or negative. And we were taught young to, you know, love the community that you came from and honor the heroes from the community. And Dr. Dr. Gavin was, you know, the world's foremost bone specialist at one time. And, you know, coming from our community, he did you know, house calls without asking anybody for money. So he was really that type of doctor. So we felt it. We were not just me, but my classmates, all of us, we... Um, you know, we were taught that we can make decisions, and we petitioned, and we got it done, man. So it was a blessing, and it was a, it was a learning lesson for me and as far as um, the power of the whole and not just yourself individually. And I was surprised when I read your book. I mean, you had this a 10-year NBA career, but you could have been a tennis player. Now, we're down here in West Palm Beach, and we have Venus and Serena living <laughs> a, a few miles away. Coco Golf is yeah, about a yeah. half an hour down in yeah, Delray. Yeah. I mean, your, your idol was a Arthur Ashe. I don't know why you didn't just you know, go be in tennis and compete in the, you know, on the circuit. Well, you know, for me, it's one of those things where you have a passion, and, and baseball was the initial one, man. It was, you know, my, my people played tennis, and we would play tennis in the summers here in Chicago almost every evening. So it became a thing that I got pretty good at. At the time, I was probably 9, 10, or 11, you know, and I played, you know, I was probably a sophomore in high school. But basketball really drew me to it. And as far as my uncle played it, and then my uncle taught me how to play it, and they taught me, you know, the nuances of the game. And it was something that, that I was passionate about, and it was something that wasn't hard for me to train for. You know, I love the training aspect of it, and you know, but the tennis part of it, Arthur Ashe was my main, one of my main um, mentors from afar when I was growing up. And as far as his discipline and his thought, and some of the stuff that he had to go through from a social justice end, it struck me. And I don't think I've ever 
talk to anyone who's had as many famous coaches. I mean, from and it started in high school. So you said your coach is Steve Fisher, Steve Fisher, Steve Fisher, who went on went on to Michigan, won a national title there, and then went on to San Diego State, and then to Tex Winter, to Paul Silas, to Phil Jackson. (laughs) It's just on Don Nelson. And, you know, and I look at it on the same side on the educational level, man. I've had great mentors from, you know, from the time I was in elementary school with my aunts and my, you know, my sister who taught me how to read and write early. My uncles taught me how to hoop early and play the sport. So I've been, I've had great tutors, man, and that just continued uh, when I got to Richie's, like you say, Steve Fisher, and he went on to do his thing up in Michigan and on to San Diego State. And to have Tex Winter, who to me is probably the brightest mind that, that basketball ball may have ever produced, uh, Lord rest his soul. But I was blessed to have had him as a mentor at 18 and be able to learn the, the real truth of the game and then be able to go to go to a professional level and, and be with a Hall of Famer like Paul Silas. And, you know, and, and carries on. Don Nelson, Jimmy Lynham, Cotton Fitzsimmons, <laughs> you know what I mean, Derek Collins. Bill Jackson, I just laugh when I think about it, you know, that when you come into a game, you never you never think that you would have an opportunity to meet some of the, some of the people that you look to when you were younger growing up and to be able to actually sit, communicate with them. And, you know, to be on the staff with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when we were with the Lakers, it was, it, it was I just been, it's just been a cool ride for me, man. So you went to Long from Chicago to Long Beach State. I can understand that clearly the weather for the weather alone, but yeah, you no but and for Tex winners. So you actually studied under the master. So we talk about triangle. You are now like probably you probably know about the triangle more than anyone because you played under it yeah, for Tex so long. So yeah. could you could you explain the triangle a little? We hear the name triangle. Maybe as the master of the triangle, you could now explain yeah. it to people. Well, I think the biggest part of it is, uh, you know, when I look at, you know, the rank of file of the teams in the NBA, probably five or six teams could be championship contenders if they use the triangle. But, um, they don't, they don't know what it is. They haven't, they haven't been prepped on it. Uh, so it's a, it's a different monster, man. So, but the biggest part is just, uh, it's ball movement, spacing. And, um, you know, player movement. And I think that's the biggest part that, a lot of teams aren't utilizing now because it's a positionless game. Right, right. And so then you- for me, for me, when I look at you know just our new our um, our rise with Chicago, the ability for us to rise, it was you know going from uh, Dell Collins who was more of a isolation. Let's see where we can get an advantage as opposed to let's move the ball and get the advantage, and that and that's what Texas is about. And when Phil picked it up, I told guys I said. The difference in what we're going to do now compared to what we've done in the past is our defensive energy is going to pick up the way because everybody's going to get touches with the basketball. Right, get everybody involved, and then they're going to play. You know that we saw from the last dance, last dance, which we'll we'll get into. But when you went, you're you're drafted at Long Beach State. You go to uh, the San Diego Clippers under Paul Silas, and I liked how Bill Bill Walton. I mean, again, you just from Bill to to Kareem to everyone. He's the one who encouraged you because he saw how much you read and was involved, and he encouraged you. you, They made you the the union rep as a rookie, which is I don't unheard of. I think before after. Yeah, and it was it was funny, you know. Bill, Bill, and I. It was it was pretty. Initially, we had like a uh, 
antagonistic type relationship because Bill is Bill can be a bully at times on the court as far as uh, he he put that veteran stuff on you and the like and and just to see it compared to you know you see it from afar but you know Bill when first day of practice Bill was talking to me about um, shagging balls for him while he shot around and I was like no way man I'm down here working on my game so he kept calling me Rook hey Rook hey Rook. And I'm like, hey, my mom named me Craig. <laughs> so if you want, if you want to let me call me Craig, so I'm down there shooting. And he turns around. He's like, I turn around, finally, like, hey man, my mom named me Craig, man. He's like, you know what? I like that. I like that. So, so almost from that point on, man, it became a thing where he, you know, and he asked me what I studied in school, and I told him I studied Black history, and he, you know, he's a history buff himself. So we struck it off, man, and our social. You know, our social conversations was cool, man. I learned a lot from Bill, especially from the standpoint of understanding, you know, the the connection between basketball players and basketball management. And he told me right away that he was going to teach me, you know, the importance of as a player to always remain loyal to the player side of things, even if I became a coach or moved up into the game on the other side of it, always side was with the players because that's the product. And you know he put me he put me in charge of uh, of the players union in as far as being the ref, and he told me yeah you go handle it and I'm like what am I doing <laughs> didn't have a clue or none of it and then when I came back he's like you learn anything I was like yeah man I learned that I didn't know nothing <laughs> you know but uh, you know Bill is, is still a friend of mine and I was blessed to be able to you know see Luke and his brother grow up you know and then to see Luke with the success that he had with us as champions with the Lakers and then to go on and do what he did and go to say this just been cool for him, man. And now with Sacramento. You know, and a secret a little a team that people don't talk about. You you were traded to the Bucks, a Milwaukee Bucks. Right. And that year in eighty five, you went thirty six and five at home and you really could that could a right. team could and you were starting the starting two guard the whole year with Sidney Moncrief. Uh, that team could right. have won the title that year. Yeah, and then, you know, our, our biggest hump was Boston, man. And, and it was always, we would always laugh as, as players after we get defeated by Boston and be like, man, if Nelly only coached when we went to Boston Garden, <laughs> you know? And it, it was a joke that Nelly, Nelly didn't want to beat Red R back on his home court. But, man, you know, that that's just one of those things. They The, the talent that they had on those teams, man, you know, it was it's similar to, you know, when MJ – Finally figured it out with our squad. It was hard for anybody during that era to get a chance to win a championship because they had to come to us. And during that period of time, Boston was the same way, man. You know, you think about their front line of just Parrish, McHale, and Bird. You know, that in itself was something like, man, how can we stop the guards from getting the ball down court to get it to them? <laughs> you know, because once they got it, it was over, man. So then you, and you took a detour in Phoenix for a little bit, but then – You've got, I guess, the, your dream team, which was to come back to Chicago, come back to your hometown, and you're playing on this team. You grew up, I think, you're, you're a fan of Norm Van Leer, who actually went to St. Francis, where around where I lived. Uh, yes, yes. But um, and you got to come in there right with Jordan and everything at the beginning, and that's why you know we watched the Last Dance on TV. So that just to be yeah. there. But you spell out in the book about exactly how hard it wasn't like just it happened it, with with Jordan. It's like it was that process to go from Doug Collins to Phil Jackson, the process. To to be able to become that good a team. Right, and I think that's that's one of the things that I felt the last dance kind of missed in, um, 
and giving credence to is that, you know, the, the import of coaching, the ability to have a system that fits the players and it's able to function in a way that's seamless. And I think that was the biggest part of the transit was how do we have to, how do we implement the system? And that's why I feel so blessed I've had Texas in college that when it came time for the transition from Doug to Phil, you know, it was Texas and I standing at half court and we going through the whole system with the guys standing, standing on the baseline. And for me, it was a thing where, you know, here I am teaching Michael Jordan. You know? <laughs> none of that is none of that is given in the in, in the last dance. Nor is it nor is it um, considered when you think about you know just the the amount of success that the Bulls have. How much of it is given given to Phil Jackson as Zen master or Michael's uh, tenacity? When I think you know when you look at what we were able to accomplish, there was a team all the way from the front office all the way to the fans and like. So I look at our system that we had, it was a perfect, you know, quote-unquote perfect storm that the players were ready to receive a system that was conducive to the growth of all the players. Right, and, I, you know, certainly the shot against the Cavaliers uh, over Jordan, over Craig Elo, but you, you had a big role in that. You wrote in your book how you actually gave up the back door to Elo on the play before. Oh, oh man, you know, and the, and the crazy part about it was uh, – you know, it, it became a thing where Michael told me when we coming back to the timeout after Elo had scored the bucket, he was like, don't worry about it, Hodge, I got you. And I'm over there kicking myself for letting him get a bucket and that kind of thing. And come to find out, he, he did just what he said. And then when he got the locker room, he like, tell him, Hodge, tell him what I told you, man. Tell him, tell him. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, man, he told me. After I gave up that back door, he was going to bail me out, and he did. And then you went through the year when after they fired Collins, and then Phil became the coach. And and I guess that's what you just said is you're just you're just you bonded with him. He let you be yourself. He 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 appreciated the fact that you were intelligent. You read books because you know he was handing books out to players. So I think that bond between you and Phil was pretty important in terms of how the Bulls were able to develop as a team. Oh, no doubt about it, and I think you know it continues, man. You know I great respect and admiration for Phil and I think is likewise and that you know, he understood and he understands that in order to be a conscious person you have to be a reader and I think that's what he did. You know, he got more guys to think in terms of the whole as opposed to self on a lot of occasions, you know. Michael would do his thing but that was that was the the air of of M J, you know, so but for the whole and even at times with Michael and you know, Phil would Bill would do what he needed to do to make sure that MJ felt the discipline of, you know, you're part of a group. And that's one of the greatest parts of when I look at the whole thing is that Phil Jackson, his ability to manage people is unlike anything I've ever seen to realize what someone's strengths and weaknesses are and allow everyone to operate in their strengths. And if we all operate at that point and, and covering up each other's weaknesses, then it's going to be hard for anybody to beat us. And then you talk you, in the last dance. They covered about how if they lost to the Pistons in, in Game Seven, they started the Breakfast Club. Everybody's lifting weights, and and you said, "I don't want to lift any weights. I, I want to keep my shot. I just shot more. I didn't, I didn't want to lift." And, right. and that's what you did. You just right. kept getting better and better and better. Yeah, and that and you know that's the thing, man, is knowing who you are. And one fit, one uh, size doesn't fit all. And I think it's one of those things where you have to calibrate and and work to see what 
what works for you and how that can fit into making the team better. And for me, it was one of those things where I just trained on, you know, my legs and, and my, you know, conditioning. But for me, strengthening more, more, I didn't need more bulk, man. And, and, you know, some guys did, and some guys wanted like that and, and played in that way. But for me, it was just my, what I preferred for, for me. And I think that's, that's what it is today. I think a lot of, a lot of young folks have a, a idea that this thing is just add water, <laughs> you know, but it's more to it. It's more to be able to, you know, learn from every time you go out, uh, in a practice situation or in a workout situation that you're gaining. You're gaining experience from every time you, you're uh, out there. And I think that's one of the things that I loved about Scotty and Horace. You know, they kept it lighthearted for us as a squad. At the same time, when it came to putting their thinking caps on at, at times when it wasn't about uh, being funny, it was about business, they were able to do that, and they grew as um, to be mature champions. And I liked how you covered it. And I don't think the last dance did a good job on this. Was that the ninety ninety one season when they when you beat the Lakers in the finals? I mean that you had Magic, you had Michael. It was you know through the scene of everything. And and at that point we look back and say, well, they got injured later in the series. But you point out that it was close. I mean, you lost that first game, and there was a chance that you could have lost that series. And 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 if the Lakers would have stayed healthy, then maybe Michael Jordan doesn't win, go six for six. So that was you. You spelled right. that out, and and also you talked in your book about how you met Jim Brown. You had a meeting with Jim Brown during that in LA. So was- oh, man. Uh, and that's what I say, man. You know, once again, um, I've been blessed, man, to be able to, to meet a lot of people who were inspirational parts of my life that they didn't know Craig Hodges from a hole in the ground. So it was <laughs> one of those things where, you know, to get a chance to meet Jim Brown during our championship run and, and to get, you know, wisdom from him and be able to share that wisdom with my teammates, man, that, that's, you know, that's prized possession for me even like now. I'm still getting a chance to meet people who meant a lot to me growing up. I I have a friendship now with Dr. John Carlos, who I saw in the 68 Olympics when I was a little boy. And for him to, you know, befriend me now and call me and and us communicate about the stuff that's going on today and and how we can build a coalition to, to, you know, bring it to, bring racism to a close, man, that's something that's powerful and and I feel great that, you know, people that I've looked at from afar are now people that I'm cool with, man. So basketball has done a lot for me. And, like, you know, when I look at that championship in in L.A., the Lakers, you know, they they had, like you say, had a chance to beat us. But for us, we knew after the first game that we had taken their best punch and that all we had to do was uh, stay focused on how we play basketball and don't get caught up into it being a – we're in the championship, but more importantly, let us go out here and do what we're capable of doing on a daily basis like we've been doing. We're talking to Craig Hodges, uh, wrote the book Long Shot, The Triumph and Struggles of the NBA, of an NBA Freedom Fighter. Uh, it's going to be out. You can order it on paperback on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Kindle. I wrote my, read my book on Kindle this weekend, so it was good. A great, great book. Uh, but on in 1991-92, that's when you became almost a de facto assistant coach because, and some people that even said the last dance, that might be the best team. And people think about the second team that won the 72 games, but a lot of people think that 91-92 team could have been the best of the Jordan's teams. Yeah, and I, I tell people, you know, just one thing to you know, even the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth championship, okay, that's cool, but to get over the hump of beating Detroit, get over the hump of beating Cleveland, get over the hump of being able to mentally 
prepare yourselves to where you're not concerned with your opponent. You're concerned with making sure you're on top of the execution of what this game plan is. And I think our 1991 team was able to galvanize ourselves in a, in a certain disciplined way that, that we grew from all of the hurt of losses. And that in that growth, we were able to see how to go about getting it done. And, and in that, we were able to say, okay, MJ does this, Scotty does this, Bill does this. And I tell people all the time that we would not have won the championship without Bill Cartwright and his ability to hold down our paint. And that he was that force that was, you know, he was a quiet leader, and but very impactful. And that during, during the time that we were able to win, I think it was one of those things that, you know, we all put our egos to the side, even MJ. You know, there would be times when, you know, people aren't going to see what's going on in practice, but I can tell you it wasn't always him bashing somebody. Sometimes it was people pulling them to the side and letting them know, hey, man, if you slip this cut right here, some good things can happen for you. And he didn't see it. So, you know, we're able to, we were able to see one another's uh, blind spots and be able to communicate in a way where it wasn't considered to be uh, criticism, but it was all meant for us to grow as a unit, and we were able to do it and, and win. So I think our 91 championship could probably beat any team that's ever won. That's my opinion. <laughs> no, that's a lot of people think that. And then I just want to talk about your shooting a little bit. We just had Rod Crew on last week about about hitting. Oh, yeah. and, and it was great to have yeah. Rod talk about uh, his book out and about how he sees the ball. And then uh, whether you describe your shooting, how you learned to have the, the arch in the ball, text winners. I mean, the first thing that, you know I said is you said there's like two balls go in a hoop. You actually put two balls in next to each other. They actually could go through. And that's why you started with the arch. Exactly, and uh, just how you refined your shooting to become a forty percent three point shooter and one of the greatest shooters in yeah. NBA history. Yeah, for me, you know, and, and kudos to Rod Carew, man. When I used to play baseball, he was one of the brothers I was watching. Watch how he would change his stance compared <laughs> to the pitcher, and how he had studied every pitcher in the league and knew where the pitches were going to come, so he could make his stance this way, so he could hit opposite field, or he could pull it down the line and. Just to have the, the mastery of being able to have something coming at you 90 miles per hour and be able to take this instrument and, and put it where you want it, man, is something powerful. And the same thing for me when, when I think in terms of basketball is just being able to, uh, you're shooting enough to where you know what's going on with your shot. You know, for me, it was to be able to know that when I, when I do certain things, the results are going to be 98% of the time. So and that's that's the biggest part um, of of shooting. Steph Curry and and Ray Allen, they all tell you the same thing that it's uh, it's a certain amount of training that you do, and you working towards perfection. Not that you're ever going to get it, but you you're working towards perfecting the mechanics of your shot, perfecting you know the different release points from the different angles, from the different distances, and the like. To know that you know why your ball goes in the basket, and that's one of the biggest things that for me is to be able to teach that now to young people who want to learn how to play the game and to, to get them to know that it's not a magic trick when your ball goes in. It's something that you can really work on and, and become a better shooter to the point where you can become um, almost a master at it, man. <laughs> and then the three-point shooting, if you ask anybody, I mean, the three-point shooting contest at the NBA All-Star Game now, I think totally dwarfs the dunk contest. I mean, the dunk, every dunk's been done. You don't have whatever. But when you, right, and, right, right. <laughs> and you were there at the beginning. I mean, you, 86, 87, 8, yeah. you're losing to Larry Bird in the finals. So you're, those years. Yeah. And then 
the one in, the, then you won your first title in ninety, and I just got to tell you, you compete against Larry Bird, Reggie Miller, Mark Price, so three of the best shooters of all time, and also you had to beat Michael right. Jordan in the first round. So the, talk right. about talk about your ability to win. And not only did you win ninety, you win in ninety one and then ninety two. Yeah, you know, and it was it was funny because um, the way that I approached the contest when I lost was totally different than the way I approached it when I won. Uh, when I approached it when I lost, I, t- I came into the weekend excited about being in the shooting contest. And then when I stopped and reflected on my losses, I was like, nah, you got to take this as a game. So I took it. I went into the next competition as it being a game situation, and all I had to do today was just catch the ball and shoot it. I didn't have to chase Isaiah. I didn't have to try to stop Benny Johnson. All I had to do is just... Bring this ball out of the rack, and, and my mindset was that every time I pulled out, pulled the ball out of the rack, there was a pass coming to me, and I was just catching and shooting it. And you know, being able to get my mind state, even to when I came into whatever city it was in, I came in and I went to my hotel, you know, like it was a game, as opposed to it being a festive weekend, and I found success in that. What do you think about the three people shooting? I mean, I go to high school basketball games now, and I know you've coached in high school basketball yourself. It just It's like every position. They're not running a dish. They shoot threes. You have kids that are shooting 15% from threes firing up. And then you see it also in college, too. It just seems to be, I mean, you prided yourself on 40%, your accuracy. It doesn't right. seem like now kids don't care what their accuracy is. Right. And then, see, and I think that's the difference in when we played the game, we played the game in a practical, with a practical, certain practical value. When I watch it today, there's really no practical value in it being five positions. There is no, it's a positionless game. And like you say, the analytics have taken the game over from the standpoint of three is more than two. So now you have everybody want to come down and launch. So I look at seven footers who are, instead of running to the basket or setting a pick and rolling to the basket, they're pick, picking and popping to the three point line. And it's it's funny to me when I look at it, and it's just the it's the cycles that the game goes through. You know, you go through that cycle of the big man being dominant, then it became the small forward and two guards, and now you know it's becoming the small man with the three and Steph Curry. So it's it's cycles, and hopefully it'll get back to that point to where positions really mean something. You can see, you know, you can see more more of a cooperative situation as opposed to it being superstar dominated, uh, top loaded. You may have two or three great players on the team and, you know, the rest of the guys are just basically trying to get them off. And I think, you know, that's not the way the game should be played. So uh, it was, so 1992 comes, you win the title. You, I was great in your book that you went, after, instead of celebrating at the clubs and the bars, you actually took all those extra shirts you had and went to all the midnight right. basketball and handed them out to the kids, which I'm sure to get a Chicago Bull champion, one of the lead players, star players <laughs> of the team in yeah. the middle at midnight to hand out, that'd be awesome. But then right. you, you didn't go back to the Bulls and you didn't go back to, and you couldn't, and here you're 32 years old, you're one of the best shooters in the league. And you talked about how, right. you know, unfortunately your stance on social Social justice, like the rest of the NBA, for the rest of your career. Yeah, it was crazy, man, to to know that you have a you have a blessing in as far as the gift is concerned and the talent. And with this talent, you know, you're capable of doing some things not only for your family but for the community. 
and not to have that opportunity and, and for it to happen the way that it did, you know, it, it was it was crazy, man. Just to just to know that it wasn't about me not being able to play anymore, but it was more about the fact that I want to speak out on the condition of my people and to have that be a problem or be an issue and be able to stop me from earning a living. That's totally unfair, man. So when I look at what Colin Kaepernick has done and what he's been able to do, I applaud him, man. And and it, it's good, man, that, you know, justice and kind of righteous conduct is starting to be applauded and, and being seen for what it's really for. I mean, you were criticized, you were, there people had problems with you, not just because you're social justice, but also your union, is a, union issues. I mean, you fought for things that seem so minor today, but are important, the pension issues and for right. veteran players, and the agents didn't like that. And so, and, and you know, yeah. right now, the players are probably thanking you for fighting for these pension things that you were able to put in place. Yeah, you know, and then during that period of time, it was one of those things where most of the players were truly apolitical in the stances that they would take. Uh, because of endorsements and trying to get another contract or what have you. But once again, the way I was raised is that we were taught early in life that we have to speak up on the condition of black people where we, wherever we find them. And at the same time, when you're in the, when you're in the position and you spotlight like the professional realm, then you have more, you have more responsibility. And, you know, when you look at what was going on in the late 70s with the NBA, uh, it was a perfect storm when Magic and Bird came into the league because at that point in time, the NBA was basically all black and they were losing sponsorship. They weren't having any, uh, they weren't getting uh, popular. The stands weren't populated by white people. So they had to find a way uh, to get that to happen. And Bird and Magic was the perfect storm for that happening. And now you had the first time when players were really being branded in the league with endorsements. And everything kind of rolled off of that, so the players after that remained somewhat silent in order to promote the league in a way that was palatable, where there wasn't any really social justice or social civil rights issues going on, even though there were, the players uh, took somewhat of a silent approach to it in order to promote the league. We're talking to Craig Hodges, author of Long Shot, The Triumph and Struggles of the NBA Freedom Fighter on 95.9, 106.9, Iron Sports. And then you did get a chance to coach in the NBA a little for six years for the Lakers. And you got the experience okay. of working with Kareem and Kobe. Okay. And, I mean, to, you know, such, you know, people with such vision. And, and it must have been great just to spending time and, and talking about life and basketball with those guys. Oh, man, you know, when I, I tell people when I was with the Lakers, that's perhaps one of my greatest, uh, one of the coolest points in as far as uh, basketball was concerned on both the professional level and just uh, to the basketball level to, to go in and work with Kobe Bryant every day for six years and Derek Fisher, Lamar Odom, and, and the brotherhood, man. It was, it was just, it was a cool opportunity for me to share my experience both with the triangle and Kobe, Kobe's main thing, he was picking my brain about MJ all the time. <laughs> and I found, I found it, uh, you know, I found it somewhat amusing at times because he, he had, uh, studied, he had studied MJ so much that he, he knew, he had certain nuances about him that he had incorporated into his game. But to me, it would be great, you know, Lord rest his soul, but it would have been great to see what his position would have been right now on whether or not players should be playing. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the the bubble and the players and all the issues that that come on? What is your opinion about well, them coming back? You know, I, 
it's uh to me it's a really a no brainer. We shouldn't be playing. It's um you know, it's about once again, money trumps money trumps people. No pun intended. <laughs> you know what I'm right. saying? But but it does that, that right now we're in a we're at a point where historically we understand the oppression that has gone on and then we when we see the brutality that is that has been heaped upon our people in cities across America. And we as athletes have an opportunity for the first time, truly. You know, when I look back at the brothers in 68 Olympics in 91 with myself and Meg Mood and the brothers and us standing on a position where these brothers have a chance to really uh, make some traction in as far as ownership is concerned. That, you know, when you have 30 billionaire white men asking 29, 30-year-old black men, hey, we need y'all. <laughs> That, that's something that's not happened in our history in that we have a certain weight and position and that we could carry. But once again, I think we act, we act to, the, um, to the money as opposed to the spiritual part of it. But we'll see what, what happens. I don't think they're going to be able to play because every day more and more people are going to get it and you're not going to be able to have a season. Because what is it going to look like if that the winner of the, of the championship was basically the, the team that had the less people who got Corona, you know. So it's gonna be it's gonna be ugly, man. It's ugly already, and I think that as a nation, with the quarantine and everything, it's given a lot of people a chance to sit down and look at things for what they truly are, and that you know a lot of people see the injustices that have gone on, and you know they want to be a part in, in in the solution to it, and I think the NBA and considering themselves the most woke league in professional sports, I think they really need to take a look at themselves and putting players in harm's way. And what is it going to take to shut it down? For, for how many how many players have to test positive or heaven forbid somebody else to pass away? Right. I mean, you talk about how your platform at basketball allows you so much of a voice. And, and I loved in your book how you talked when you met with Nelson Mandela. And here you are, you're meeting one of your idols, Nelson Mandela. And he knew who you were, watched your games, everything about yeah, that. Man. And it was talking hoops. And that was so crazy. That was so crazy. So um, when, he, when, when Mandela came to Chicago, um, Operation Push asked me to come and, and be a part of it. And so when I got there, I had no clue. When I seen him walk in, you know, our eyes contacted me. Broke into a smile, and I broke into a smile, you know. So I'm just thinking he gave me as a brother. He was like, so where we sat, I sat right next to him for lunch. <laughs> so we sitting there, I was like, man, bro, this is such a, I can't even believe I'm sitting there. He was like, I can't believe I'm sitting there next to you. I'm like, what? He's like, you know, people who watch basketball in South Africa. That that blew my gasket, man. I was like, yeah, all right, man, it's cool. <laughs> that, that was cool to know that even from afar that, a lot of times you never know the impact, and I know the impact that we had as a, as a championship squad, but I didn't know that, you know, Nelson Mandela actually knew who Craig Hodges was. That's pretty cool. <laughs> That's a great story. Well, Craig, so the book, so you're working on two other books, and but you have mm-hmm. this book, the Longshot book, is going to be out. Am I correct? It's going to be out in paperback, because I saw on Barnes & Noble you could order it, and it's like on, it's on order. It's coming out in a month or two, correct? Right, it should be actually it should be out hopefully before the month is out. Uh, I'm, you know, like once again, man, when I wrote it, I didn't realize what you know what happens. Yeah, once it's published and all of that, and you see it take a life of its own, even to the point where now it's an option for a documentary and, and feature film. So, I, man, it's been cool, man. So I just continue to 
keep my nose to the grindstone, man, and as far as knowing that it's by human rights and that we have to stand up for those who are less fortunate at every point in time, man, and we can't we can't be silent because silence is violence. Right, right. And and, and the good thing is that, you know, you write the, the, the book is, we have to learn and educate, and you write a book that is very, it's very educational, and it covers your life and your ups and your downs, and it's something that I think everyone yeah. would find enjoyable to read. And as I said, you cover so many bases, from shoot, from your shooting to the, the bulls to social justice, everything. It's pretty, and, you've, and right. you've encountered so many amazing people in your life. I mean, every person who's, anybody in basketball has touched your life, so that was pretty cool about this. Yeah, man, and, and you know, and that's, that's, the, that's the cool part, and I tell young folks, man, and I grew up in the, I grew up in the projects in Chicago Heights, at a place where a lot of people say, you know, what good can come up out of here? How you going, you know, with you know, and a lot of hopelessness, you know, where people are concerned now. But I tell people, you'd be surprised what can happen in your life if you study hard and and keep your nose to the grindstone. And as far as helping people as opposed to hurting people, do no harm, and you'd be surprised what will happen in your life. Great words, great words. Um, we've been talking to Craig Hodges, long shot, triumph of struggles of an NBA freedom fighter. Thanks a lot, Craig, for coming on. We'd love to have you on again uh, for your next book. Appreciate but you. thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, take care. Peace, peace, peace. peace.